the cry of the soul of Nehemiah. This is um, week four. And uh, no, week five. No, nope, week four. This is week four. Uh, the cry of the soul of Nehemiah. And so we've been uh, just slowly walking through the Old Testament prophet in the book of Nehemiah. And uh, that's traditionally what we do is we preach through a, a book of the Bible. And so excited to be able to get into the Old Testament and uh, look at a prophet who is known for his prayers, uh, who usually that when this book is preached, it's about some, some building campaign and some project that we need to raise money for and that kind of thing. That's not the case. Uh, feel free to give your money, but that's not why we're doing this uh, series. Uh, we're really just looking at who Nehemiah was and his, his cry uh, out to God, uh, really in almost every single chapter of the book that there is a prayer of Nehemiah. And so that's what we've been, we've been looking at. Um, so to, just to kind of uh, kick it off, I just want to, um, have you ever um, uh, heard or seen a kid, a little kid usually being, being cocky? You're like, no, it's, that's just my boss. Like, I know what that's like. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking particularly of like a small child who, you know, you're playing a really simple game like shoots and ladders, but you you know, it's kind of hard to purposefully lose at shoots and ladders. Maybe that's a bad example. But other games, right, where you, you, you purposefully are losing to help them, you know, and make them feel good and that kind of thing. But then they win. They're like, man, you're really bad at that game. And it's like, whoa, calm down here, right? Uh, I could have just crushed you with my little pinky finger, but I decided not to, um, right? And so they kind of have those phrases like, I beat you. Oh, man, I did that. Did you see me do that? And it's like, yeah, no, I don't know about that. Or, or the worst is when they call you out and they're like, man, you're really bad at that game. And it's like, okay, listen. You need to learn a life lesson right now, um, right? Uh, I remember distinctly playing some basketball with my, my little, he's not my nephew, but he's my cousin's kid, but I, they call me Uncle Brian, and his name's Wyatt. And uh, we were playing basketball. He was little, you know, using one of those little Fisher-Price, you know, little, little hoops, and I'm playing on my knees, and, you know, and I'm missing on purpose, and, you know, I'm letting him dunk it, you know, every time, and, and uh, he was, he kept calling me out, like, you're really bad at basketball, and I was like, all right, that's, this is, that's the end, uh, and so, so I didn't let him score then, the rest of the right, so he would shoot, and I would just block it across the room, and then he starts crying, and he's like, that's not fair, and I'm like, whoa, you said, I, right, I gotta, I gotta teach you, that's how you play basketball, sometimes your shots get blocked, right, uh, when you're only two feet tall, it's bound to happen, um, and, and so Nehemiah, though, is going gonna, is gonna to do something and say something that I think when we, when we first initially read his prayer uh, specifically is going to sound really cocky. Um, he's just going to come across of like, wow, that sounds selfish. That sounds not what a prophet should pray. And so um, it's, it's a longer uh, passage. And so really what I want to do is just kind of walk through the passage um, and then just Make a few little comments here and there, but then I really want to focus on the prayer um, and, uh, and go on from there. So this is, uh, I want to go back again. I know we've done this every week and just kind of recap what's going on, but I think it's important. And so just under Nehemiah and who he is, uh, that he is uh, in the area of uh, Persian king Artaxerxes I, also called the Great and so everything about all these Persian kings is this is great. This is, they are the greatest. They're the great. They're the great. They're the great. And as we're going to learn about him, that he is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. 
Um, he's also going to be a contemporary with the prophet uh, Ezra and also Esther, uh, which was written right around the same time. But he, this cupbearer is actually a, a position of authority and power. Um, it wasn't just a servant. This, this had a lot of weight to it. Uh, Mesopotamian culture was second, second hand to the king. And we don't know exactly Persian, but it would have been up there. So uh, that's who he is. And so the whole point and, and where we've kind of been to up until this point is that he, he prays to the God of heaven. This is his first prayer. He prays to the great and awesome God. He gives Yahweh, his God, that title, the great. And then later on, he's going to say, give me strength as I talk to this man. And he's simply a man, but he's going to be afraid. He's going to be very much so afraid. And so it was two weeks ago that we looked at praying without ceasing that he goes in before the king and he says, I prayed to God, I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I answered the king. As the king says, What do you want? And he was very much afraid. King Artaxerxes was, was a, a, a cruel man. He had recently just stopped the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem. And now here, Nehemiah, four years after that petition went out to stop the rebuilding of the wall, Nehemiah is going to go back to that same king and, uh, and ask for permission for that. So, the king grants him permission. He goes down, except he's now he's having a lot of conflict with his neighbors in the surrounding areas. And so that's where we pick up the story. So this week's sermon is going to be prayer for the poor. is Nehemiah chapter 5, the entire chapter uh, 1 through 19. So uh, let's just read through this. I'll make a couple comments here and there. Uh, and then we're going to take our time and kind of dig into a couple other things this morning. So Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Okay, so there's some, something going on here. The wall's starting to be rebuilt, but they're not happy. And it's actually significant that he says the men and their wives. Uh, in ancient Israel, uh, the culture there was that women simply didn't really have a voice like this. And so what Nehemiah is trying to say is that it got bad enough that even the wives are like, whoa, 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 we're going we're gonna to break the mold here in, in traditions and standards, and, and we're going to shout out, and we're going to say something's wrong here along with the men and our husbands. And then it uses this phrase, a great outcry. Um, and if you remember last year as we walked through the book of Exodus, uh, it's the exact same word. This, this cry, this great cry went out in Exodus to cry out to God of, of remember us in our slavery. And it's the exact same phrase that's here. It's this huge, great outcry, except now it's not against the Egyptian slavers. It's against their fellow Jews. So then verse 2, some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous, and in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. All right, so they need, need some food. It just makes sense, right? There's been a famine in the area, as we kind of tell. We kind of get some pieces here and there. But at the same time, remember, they're surrounded by their enemies. So any kind of trade that would have been coming and going and all those different things would have most likely been completely shut off. They wouldn't have had access to a lot of their food that they normally would have had. Verse three, others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. All right, so they're taking out other loans on their fields they once owned that were theirs. They had to mortgage it. And again, because they most likely didn't even have access to those fields uh, because they would have been under occupation from the surrounding armies. And so they, they're saying, hey, we're, we'll, we'll sell you this field that we can't, that we can't even uh, farm right now. And, and so they're, they're taking out all these loans in order so that they can, they can uh, uh, pay and get some grain. 
Verse 4, still others were saying, we have had to borrow money and to pay the, king, to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. So just, it's kicking them all down. They're trying to get food and they got to pay taxes on top of it. And although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our own daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. The word here on slavery, uh, slavery is never a good thing, so don't hear that. But this is, not, uh, this is not what we would think slavery like in the United States where they were bound in chains and forced to work. This slavery was uh, actually, uh, it's mentioned a lot in the book of Leviticus that this was um, uh, be, to be able to pay off a debt. And it was only to ever be six years long. And so um, if someone owed me a lot of money or they did, did, did something, they harmed some animal of mine that, was caught, that cost me a lot of money, they would enter into servitude to be able to kind of pay back for that, but only after six years. And then every six years, there was what was called a year of jubilee. And anyone who was uh, in that position as a, as a servant, um, that they were set free of their bondage. That, um, and so, so if they came in, you know, year one, they were worked for six years. But if it, they, you know, they came in year, year six, they only had to work, you know, six months. And then, they're, hey, paid off. We're good. Um, and so that was kind of, that's what's going on here. But they would, they would do that. They're saying, we can't pay these debts. So we're, we're having to send our kids to enter into this servitude underneath the Jews now. So again, this is this great outcry, not against their Egyptian slavers, but now against their Jewish slavers that are their own people. So this great outcry that's going, going out, right? They, uh, they're powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others, right? They, they have this debt that they need to pay off. So moving on here in verse six, it says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together, which that sounds like, well, isn't that, don't you, I mean, what's the big deal here? Um, that was a big no-no uh, in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that they were not allowed to charge interest to fellow Jews. And so they're, they're blatantly breaking the law here by charging interest so, so I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles, and now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So there would have been a normal court here. It sounds like Nehemiah went to them, and when he says you are charging your own people interest, and, and I don't know, you can kind of read between the lines, don't really know what happened there. But they doesn't sound like they were like, okay, we'll fix it. So it says we called together a large meeting. Basically, all the people, right? All the people that were causing the outcry, they were going to be the, the jury as he stands as judge over this. And he, and he says, here, right, here, this is what's going to happen. This is the, the judgment on you. But it says that they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Verse 9, so I continued, what, are you, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and avoid the reproach of the Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people, right? There's some kind of some self-confession here. It says, yeah, I've, I've done that. I'm guilty of this. My brothers and the men are also lending people money and grain. But he says, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, uh, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil, there was a, uh, all the commentaries I read, a lot of them with that whole 1% or, or 1 100th. 
it was very confusing, but I think what Nehemiah and what it seems to be is happening is that he's saying we, it's, it would be impossible for you to give them everything back all at once. So in payments, right, once a month or whatever it was, and, and ended up working out, they were paying that back to the people that they owed that money to. Uh, verse 12, they said, we will give it back and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. And moving on, verse, uh, I don't know, I must have, verse 12. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and the officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, God, shake out their house and their possessions, anyone who does not keep this promise. All right, this is, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but this is what's called a prophetic performance art. And a lot of times, prophets in the Old Testament would, would symbolically do something. Uh, they would marry an individual to, to show what the marriage of, of God is like with Israel. Um, they, would, they would eat certain things in certain ways. And just to, to demonstrate something else about the character of God or who he is and what he's doing, um, and so that's what's happening here. So you can kind of, you can picture Nehemiah in this long flowing robe, right? He kind of just shakes everything out and gets all the, all the creases out and shakes it and brushes it off. And he says, in this way, may God shake out their house and their possessions, anyone who does not keep his promise, right? May they just be completely topsy-turvy. There's going to be some calamity on them if they don't keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praised Yahweh, and the people did as they promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, um, it's, it's the first time that we read that he was the governor. Um, so he must have been appointed governor by Artaxerxes, but for some reason, it's the first time that he enters that into the narrative. Um, so he's in charge. Uh, he is in charge, the governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. Um, let me just keep reading, I'll give commentary on this. So, so, but, the, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over to the people. So what he's saying here is that the governor and his entourage, if you will, they, they were allowed to kind of have a, a portion of the king's tax. They were in position and authority by and set in this position by King Artaxerxes, and so they had this right to be able to demand better things. Um, as you can imagine, the governor isn't necessarily out you know, work in the fields and, and, you know, making his own bread and that kind of thing. And so it was almost like they would, they would demand, hey, you owe me this, you need to give me this. And they would just live like kings. And that was their right to do that in a sense. Um, and so what he is saying is that we didn't do that. We didn't demand a tax. We didn't demand the money um, that we could have. We could have made them go into debt for this, but right, things, things are changing here of, of generosity and charity to the people that can't pay these these debts and can't pay these things. And so he says, we didn't, we didn't do that. We didn't demand all that like people in the past have done. Verse 16, instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall and all my men were assembled there for the work and we did not acquire any land. Uh, last chunk here. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table. So this was kind of what they, they were actually required uh, as far as I was reading um, to hold a court 
So the governor or the king or anybody had this court, right? And, and I was, all I can think is Prince Ali Ababwa, right? And his, his entourage that comes in, dung, 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 right? He didn't do that, right? He didn't have this big fanfare. I think that was the second uh, reference to Aladdin I've made in, in two weeks. I just watched it, so it's on my mind. Um, so he has this entourage, and, they, and they, so 150 people, right, that, they, that are sitting at this table, um, and each of those came in from the surrounding nations. So there, there's people and nobles that are, that are there eating, and he says, each day, uh, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, uh, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because of the demands were heavy on these people. So you say, man, an ox a day, right? That's, the, that's a lot of oxen. That's a, six sheep a day. It's a lot of sheep. You're going to think, who is he feeding? And it sounds like he could have done a whole lot more um, in, in, that, uh, in that scenario. And then we get to his prayer. So this last, this, the, this is the, the, his fourth prayer that we're going to get to in this book. He says this. He says, remember with favor, remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. So I want to look a little bit at this prayer of Nehemiah. Right? Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. And this Man, when I, when, I, when I read this, it just sounds like, wow, like that just sounds a little selfish. Like you, you still are the governor. You still seem to be in charge. You're, you're getting food. You're getting everything that you want. Sure, you could be taking more, but remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. But before I answer that question, or at least really dig into that passage, I want to make the jump to why does Hope Lower Town exist? And there actually is a connection, which we'll get to eventually, but I want to just go through this briefly. Why do we exist? Why does the church exist? Why are, why are we here? Why does Hope Lower Town exist? And so our, our vision statement of Hope Community Church is this, to honor God by helping as many people as possible become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That the primary thing right off the bat is to honor God. It is all about God's glory. This is not simply for us to, to look good in a community, in a neighborhood. This isn't, isn't for money. It's not for fame. It's not for any of that. The first and primary reason that we exist is to honor God. How? By helping as many people as possible get connected in community, right? We, we love community, right? And Hope Community Church, we, we love getting to know each other. We love our, our small groups and, and getting to know each other, uh, not just by, by name and what we do and on the surface, but, but really getting down into values and opinions and, and what really matters in our lives and, and to, get, to, to get there. That's, that's the whole thing. And then as many people as possible, that we're not going to be biased on anything whatsoever, to honor God by helping as many people as possible become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And so we kind of have this uh, really bad uh, run-on sentence that kind of will explain this more. And so I just want to walk through that. Why do we do what we do? And again, primary thing, it's for God's glory, period. It's for God's glory. It can't be for me. It can't be for you. It can't be for anything. Everything has to be given back to God. Don't try to touch the glory. Don't steal the glory. And I'm always reminded of that cleft in the rock, right? When Moses is, he just says, God, let me just see where you once were. 
Let me, and God says, okay, I'm gonna pass by you. You can kind of see the aftershock of where I once was, but you can't touch it. If you look at me, you're gonna die, all right? That, don't touch the glory of God. And so if there's something that God is doing in our church and in our neighborhoods and our community, don't just, don't stand back and say, look at me, right? And I think Nehemiah has been a really good example of that, that he strategizes, he plans, he's a diplomat, but every single time, man, God did that. He routed the end. Did you see how he, he thwarted their plan? Everything has been for God's glory, and it should be for us as well. The second aspect of this sentence is by God's grace, that we need to be reliant on God and his grace for us, uh, whether it's a good time that we're thriving or a difficult time or whatever, to be able to say this is only by God's grace that I'm able to do what I'm able to do. I can only kill sin by the grace of God. I can only love others by the grace of God. So that's why we do what we do. For God's glory, by the grace of God, through the truth of the word of God. Uh, one of the very first sermons that we preached here uh, back in, in fall of 2017 was sola scriptura, right? That, that the Bible of God is our highest authority. It was the 500th anniversary of, uh, of uh, Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door. I actually just, I had a buddy of mine last night I saw on Facebook that he said, I'm all done putting my Halloween decorations up um, to scare the little papish children. And he, and he hailed, you know, nailed, nailed 95 Theses to his door, um, which I thought was kind of funny. Was, <laughs> I thought it was funny. I got a kick out of that. Because he did it on Hallow's Eve, Halloween. Uh, he did it on October 31st. So that, I, you know, Reformation joke. It's funny to me. Um, all right, so, so then uh, through, through the truth of the word of God, and so that's what we walked through. And, and even in this building, that again, that high, highest pinnacle up there on this on the stained glass window in the back is an open Bible, that that is our highest authority. That if somebody stands in this pulpit and tries to explain something or teach something that is in contradiction to what the Bible says, um, what are we doing? Like, I mean, real, what's the point? What is the point of gathering together to study God's word if they say, yeah, that whole, that, this chunk of God's word, I don't, I don't think that can be applicable for today. That's offensive. You know what? The gospel's really offensive. The gospel says that every human being is a sinner and that you can't do anything on your own to be saved. And that you need full reliance on the blood of Jesus to forgive you of your sins. That's offensive. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Yeah, but Jesus paved away. All right, and that's the truth, and that, and that comes from God's word and his scripture, and so we want to make sure that we keep that uh, front and center, and then we say, uh, depending on God through the Holy Spirit. I think that's, if, if, you, if you're like me, if you grew up Baptist, Holy Spirit sometimes was a bad word. Um, we just didn't talk about the Spirit. It was like, ooh, right? Someone was like, hey, you know, other than praying in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, like that was okay. We baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You talk about the Holy Spirit. Ooh, yeah. Careful, right? Tread lightly here. Uh, I, think, I think we need to be a little more educated on what the Holy Spirit does. And if we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and if that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is also with us, then what can we do that with? Or what can we do with the Holy Spirit? Or what, I should rather say, what can he do through us and in spite of us? Um, we have this phrase that we've used for a long time, and I've been using it for a while, but we would say that we're, we're charismatic with a seatbelt, right? And that seatbelt that, that, that's keeping everything in check is the scripture. And so if we say, yeah, man, the Holy Spirit did this thing and did all this, and it's like, man, if that contradicts what the scriptures teach about the Holy Spirit, then I don't think that's accurate. 
It doesn't make any sense to me. So, so, but, but depending on God through the Holy Spirit as he guides and directs and intercedes for us and on our behalf. Then he says, then he, then the, the statement says this, depend on the, uh, through the Holy Spirit because all people matter to God. All people matter to God. Doesn't matter where they're at, where they're coming from, all people matter to God. Therefore, we hope to make disciples. We hope to make disciples. We want to make fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. This isn't just somebody that we don't, I don't, I don't want, my goal, the reason why we, we planted this church and isn't just so that the space can be filled to the, to the brim of people who just sit there and do nothing. Right? I, want, I want to make disciples that make disciples that make disciples and follow what the apostles did and that they've trained and has been handed down for thousands of years in church history to, to make disciples in whatever way and capacity that we're able to do that. And then finally, and ultimately spread the kingdom of God. To spread the kingdom of God, to go into the kingdom of darkness and trash the joint. That's, that's our calling. As we looked at six weeks ago, whatever, to say that, that Jesus has won the battle. He won that battle on the day that he gave his life for our sins and he crushed the head of that ancient serpent, that old snake, the devil, Satan himself. Jesus won that victory and now the gates of hell cannot stand against the gospel and against his church. And so we get to go out and share that good news of who Jesus is and to make disciples. In other words, that when you read this statement, this church cannot simply be a social gathering. It cannot just be a, a social club of getting together. I always say it's not just a yacht club. And I'm like, nobody in here owns a yacht. If you do, talk to me after, after service. Uh, <laughs> This is not, it's not, right? This isn't just a social club. It's not just a social gathering. Do we get to know each other? Yes, of course. On an incredibly intimate and deep level. I don't, I, don't, I don't talk to others. I don't talk to strangers about my sins and things I'm struggling with and, 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 and doubts that I have. That's what we get to do as a community and get real with each other and ultimately for God's glory, by God's grace, through the truth of the word of God, depending on God, through the Holy Spirit, because all people matter to God. Therefore, we hope to make disciples ultimately spread the kingdom of God. There is life changing power in the gospel. And that is why, that is why we're here. So let's go back to this passage. What is it exactly that Nehemiah is praying for? Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. I love what this commentary says. It says, here we have another prayer of Nehemiah. What he did was not out of charity, all right? So what he did for all the people of Israel, it was not simply out of just charity's sake. He did it to receive the favor of God. That's a very different way of, of looking at this, right? He, I'm not just doing this to do this. I'm not just doing this because oh, I have to, you know, God says to be nice to other people, so therefore we do that. He does this to receive the favor of God. The Jews were God's own people, the carriers of his revelation. To promote their welfare was to promote the cause of God. And nothing must be done to thwart the plan of God for his people. Nehemiah's action was thus motivated religiously and was not done 
for purely humanitarian reasons. He does this for God's favor, the same way that we do everything for God's glory and his fame. We do this for him, not for us. We do this for God's glory. This is why we exist. And what's really awesome about this is we get to follow God's example. We get to follow Christ's example himself and what this actually looks like. He says this in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, um, let, me, let me stop. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but let me just explain that phrase, such a great cloud of witnesses. Um, I think sometimes people can think this might be a contemporary, people that are uh, around us that are really awesome, just uh, people of the faith, and, and we look up to, to these men and women and that kind of thing. Um, but it's, it's more so on the line of people that, that went before us. Um, they're not in our presence, right? They're not some spirit floating around us this, in, in some cloud uh, that are helping. It's not the case, right? But people have gone before us. They fought the good fight. They fought the race. They finished the race. And so, therefore, we're able to look at their lives and their testimony as witnesses. And he continues, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, right? Just, just get rid of the sin and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. How do we do this? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, or as the older translations say, the author and the finisher of our faith. And then what does it say here? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The cross wasn't a pleasurable experience. He endured the pain and the suffering and the wrath of God because there was something more joyful that was going to happen. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, why? And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that, that's what it was about. It was about God's glory. And how does he do this? He does this by giving his life for his sheep. He sits down at the right hand of God. And even more explicitly, we can look at John chapter 17, 1 through 5. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Right? Jesus knows he's about to die. And he says, glorify your son. Right? Sounds familiar. Show favor to me. Glorify your son. Why? So that your son may glorify you. This is all about you. I suffer and I die, not for me, not for charity or humanitarian reasons. I die for your glory, Father. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those that you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began." I mean, how many times is glory in this statement of the Father and of the Son? I was saying, this is what it's all about. It's about this glory. And if we seek to aim, because I think in our hearts of hearts, and I've definitely thought this before, if we exist to give God glory, and God says, you exist to give me glory, again, isn't that selfish? 
But if we really step out of that and think about it, that when God says, give me the glory, reflect back to me the glory that's due my name, what he's saying is that there's, if you, when you don't do that, when you give yourself glory or other things glory, you're going to be, you're going to be empty. That we have been created to glorify a God that is worth glorifying. And when we glorify anything else, we fall short. So we could say, well, that's selfish for God to create something and then demand glory. But what he's doing is the most loving, most beautiful thing that he could have ever done for any lesser creation is because he knows the only satisfying thing that could ever fulfill you in your entire existence as a human being is me. I am the greatest thing ever. And if you love me and if you glorify me, that is what gives life. That is what is joyful. And we do this by following the example of Jesus Christ, that he came into this world and we want people to be fully devoted followers of this man, God, who died for our sins. And it says that we need to uh, uh, make disciples. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the foundations of the world. And we do this, right, in verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. That Jesus died for our sins, and then he tells us to fulfill this great commission, to go into all the world and make disciples. Do we do this by simply just teaching good morality of Jesus? No, that, that's falling short of the glory. We do this by saying that he died for the sins of of the world. So again, why does Hope Lower Town exist? Again, to honor God by helping as many people as possible become fully devoted followers of Christ. What I think is interesting as we look at Nehemiah, as we look at Christ, and as we look at 2,000 years of church history plus, we can see that times have changed. Times have, have significantly changed. This is not how people did church 2,000 years ago. Times have changed, but what we can see is that God hasn't changed. Uh, in systematic theology on, on Thursday, we just went over this. It's called the immutability of God. It's unchangeableness, that he cannot change. And we, his creatures, we do change. He is the only one that doesn't change, that has ever existed that doesn't change. That's who he is. He does not change. And his message hasn't changed. It's always about his honor and his glory so that he can, he can save uh, as many people as possible and that we can do our job to save as many people as possible. So I think what the whole point of this and why, why I bring this up is, should we be a charitable church? The answer is yes. Should we help feed and clothe the poor and the homeless? The answer is yes. But if that is our only goal, we've completely missed it. We've completely fallen short of the commission of what God and Jesus has sent us to do and be here in a community. That our goal, our job, is to preach Christ crucified first and foremost. A friend of mine, Tyler St. Clair, he's out in Detroit, Michigan, he came and did a seminar uh, downtown Minneapolis um, uh, called Church in Hard Places. And 
And we were talking about individuals and specific people that are they're always just asking for things and need help and uh, whatever that may be. And, 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 uh, and there's, there's an individual that comes every once in a while, it's a homeless individual, and he just needs a little handout, needs a shirt, needs whatever it is. And, and, and there have been times in my own heart, this confession, that I'm just really quick to dismiss it. All right, here's the thing, now, now go. And Tyler reminded me of this truth, that it's not simply putting a shirt on his back that's going to save him. It's not going to do anything that I have been called to share the gospel with this individual. And so I'm able to do that. So last few times, he's cursing me up and down. I just want him to get out of here. And that's what? It's like, hey, man, I love you. And you know why I love you? Because Jesus loves you even more. That's what we're called to do, that we're called to share the gospel. And so while we can be charitable, while we can feed the poor, let's not forget what we've actually been called to do. And that is to share and spread the light of him who has called us out of darkness. That's the gospel. So does that mean don't be charitable, right? Hey, someone needs something, don't do it. No, but maybe just explain why you want to do that and why you want to help. I think that's what we've been called to do on just that little aspect. So in conclusion, gospel application, are you on board with the Great Commission? All right, this is not just simply saying, hey, there's some really good teachings from this man, Jesus, that if we all just live the moral life that he explained, I think this world would be a better place. I agree with that. But that's not why Jesus came. He didn't come for purely humanitarian reasons to increase our quality of life. He came to give us everlasting life with him and the Father and the Spirit. Are we on board to make disciples of all nations? And that might even mean sacrificing friendships that we've been called to make disciples, not friends. And yet, when we seek to make disciples, usually they become our friends. And then finally, how can we journey together in 2020? And if you weren't here, if you want to go hope, uh, hopecc.com slash 2020, there's a big thing that we want to journey together and praying together and, and uh, reading scripture together and, and learning different things about some ministries and things that are happening that uh, around hope that I know I'm excited about and how can we do this, right? So if you go on there and again, fill that out, feel free to do that. Um, and, uh, and I'm excited to build a journey along with you as we read scripture together. As we do every week, we're gonna spend a little bit of time in communion. As we look at these elements, the bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us and the juice that represents his blood that was shed for our sins. That this wasn't simply, again, a humanitarian effort. This was blood Spilt. This was a body and flesh that was torn for the forgiveness of our sin so that we could have everlasting life, so that we could then go on journey with Jesus to share his good news and his gospel. Um, all that we would ask is that you'd be a follower of Jesus. If you've never taken communion, um, again, all we'd ask is that you're a follower of Jesus. If you say, yeah, that, that Jesus I'm on board with. If it's just, a, I mean, I thought Jesus was just a nice guy then I would say, man, I don't know if we are a follower of Jesus. Have we bent the knee to King Jesus and say, yes, I'm in. I'm in. What can I do? How can I serve? Uh, there is gluten-free option on the right side if that is a dietary need. Uh, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for uh, a time in the word this, this morning. That as we look at uh, an old, ancient text the Nehemiah, now we can look at commentary and we can look at this narrative and then realize it's not just a story. It's not just and simply a story about a prophet, a man who lived a couple thousand years ago. 
who said some really cool things and, and did some really awesome things for his, his community and his nation that he governed over. Now we can look at that as a, as a history book and say, yeah, Nehemiah, man, what a, what a great guy. He led well. He led by example. But God, that we would look and say, why is it that he's doing what he's doing? And as we look, not just this week, but in weeks past, that it's always about your glory. And so God, would you just help us understand that? Would you help us put things aside that so easily entangle us and, and ensnare us with our sins and things that maybe you've even created that are good, like family and work and, and all these things that we'd say, this is so good and I, and I love this thing, but God, that cannot be the end goal. That cannot be our only hope of glory, that we need to give you the glory because you have created us to give you glory because that we, you knew and you know that that is the only thing that can provide true satisfaction in our hearts and minds. So God, as we sing, as we partake of these elements, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified in that, that as the psalmist says, that we would now reflect back to you gladly that glory that is due your name. And it's in Jesus' most precious name that we pray. Amen.